We make decisions every day, but these days, those decisions, big and small, can feel paralyzing. Welcome to Deciding Factors, a new podcast from GLG. I'm your host, Eric Jaffe. Each week, I'll talk to a world-class expert who has faced incredibly tough decisions and can offer unique insights to help you navigate the decisions you face. On January 22nd, 2020, the first case of COVID-19 in the United States was reported to the CDC. By mid-March, as incidences of the virus began to grow exponentially, local governments issued lockdown orders, asking all non-essential workers to remain at home and shutter schools. While this enabled some regions to stem outbreaks, others continue to struggle. With winter still in front of us, and as government-enforced restrictions lessen, the potential for more outbreaks looms large. To date, nearly 200,000 Americans have lost their lives in a pandemic that is not yet under control. The future is uncertain. All over the world, people are asking big questions. For example, how effective were the lockdowns and early preventative measures? How quickly might a vaccine be made available to the public? And how can we grapple with the politicization of the virus that has only seemed to make matters worse? My guest today is the perfect person to help us answer these questions. Dr. Stephen Ostroff was previously Deputy Director of the CDC's National Center for Infectious Disease during the SARS outbreak. More recently, he worked at the FDA for over five years, twice serving as acting commissioner as well as chief scientist. Dr. Ostroff, welcome to Deciding Factors. So honored that you're taking the time with us today. It's good to be with you. I was hoping we could start on a point of reflection. What have we learned about fighting COVID-19 in the past six months? Well, let me start out by saying that I've worked in public health for a long time, for about 40 years. And for most of that time, I worked in the area that we refer to as emerging infectious diseases, diseases that we either didn't know were out there, infections that we didn't know were out there, or that for one reason or another have changed in terms of their epidemiology, that they either have become more frequent, they've developed antibiotic resistance for a whole variety of reasons. We see certain diseases emerge. And over the last 20 to 30 years, we've probably had one of these diseases emerge pretty much every year. Now, when they happen, all you can do is draw upon prior experience. We learn on the fly. And some of the things that we thought to be the case at the beginning turn out as we accumulate more information, as we better understand the epidemiology. And it's not at all uncommon for some of the recommendations and some of the things that are said early on to turn out not necessarily to be entirely accurate or to, in some instances, turn out to be totally unreliable. With this virus, we only had a couple of predecessors to look back upon that caused kind of serious respiratory diseases in the coronavirus family. We also looked at the experience that we've had over the years with influenza, where sometimes the studies that have been done looking at influenza were not totally convincing about the benefits of mask using. It wasn't entirely understood how important a role individuals without symptoms may play in transmitting the virus and spreading the viruses to others in order to make them sick. And it turns out the more we learned about this disease, and the more we learned about this virus, it turned out that those individuals play a very important role. We learned that over the first month or two of the outbreak. 
It wasn't thought that masks would be necessary. They weren't very strongly recommended. In fact, to a certain degree, they were discouraged because we wanted to uh, conserve this supply of masks to be able to use in healthcare settings where we know that they work. But once it was recognized how important individuals without symptoms were in propagating this virus, I think that's when you saw these recommendations change. And that is simply science and learning in action. And again, as we learn more about these emerging diseases, it's not at all uncommon that some of the things that we recommend at the beginning uh, change over time. Mm. I like that. Science and learning in action. The healthcare system, even in the absence of specific therapeutics, is a learning system. As one example, when the role of blood clotting became much more appreciated in terms of causing some complications, then they started using blood thinners, and a lot of those complications disappeared. They learned about how to manage oxygen needs without having to put people on ventilators. And so we've gotten much, much better at knowing what to do to take care of people that have severe illness associated with COVID-19. The epidemiology has changed somewhat, and the individuals that these days are getting COVID-19 has shifted, especially by age group. And so you see a much higher proportion of cases that are being diagnosed these days occurring in younger individuals rather than in a lot of the older individuals that were disproportionately impacted much earlier in the pandemic. And I know Robert Redfield said yesterday, September 16th, that masks are perhaps even more important than the vaccine. I'm curious, do you think that even if there were to be a vaccine for some period of time, we would need to continue to wear masks, perhaps even well beyond the time of a vaccine? Why choose one or another when you can do both? And I say that for a couple of reasons. One of them is we don't know how effective any of these vaccine candidates will ultimately be shown to be. And so without that information, it's hard to make a statement like masks are going to be more effective than getting a vaccine. One of the other questions that we won't immediately be able to answer is how long does that protection last? And at what point may you need to get a booster? And I think until that question is actually answered, there's going to continue to be a need to use masks. We don't really know that the vaccine will be equally effective in all segments of the population. And so for people who have underlying illnesses that may suppress the immune system, for individuals that are in the senior citizen age group, experience with some other vaccines like the flu vaccine suggests that they don't have the same protective ability. And so in those circumstances, you may get some partial protection, but if you really want to be fully protected, you may have to continue to use a mask. I can't see a scenario where we'll totally move away from having people wear masks. We should get ourselves out of the mindset that use of masks is like a light switch, uh, that you're simply going to flip it on for some period of time and then you shut it off and, you know, been there, done that. We're not going to do that anymore. From your vantage point, can you talk about how effective you think lockdowns have been and what you would expect moving forward with respect to our kind of broad policy on lockdowns? The standard was set very early in China and in a couple of other locations. Many of us in public health were quite surprised at how effective that lockdown worked and how quickly 
the virus was brought under control in Wuhan. Why did it work? One of the things that was learned pretty early on from the experience in China is this concept that's called the R0, or the rate of transmission of the virus. And it was estimated in a number of these early locations that every individual that was infected with this virus tended to spread it on average to two or three other individuals. When a lot of these people are without symptoms, then it's hard to understand what else to do to limit the number of people that somebody who's infected comes in contact with. Thus, the lockdowns. Modeling studies showed pretty clearly that when that was employed in China and when that was employed in Europe, you very quickly knock down that rate of transmission from somewhere around two to three, and in some instances higher than three, below one. I will confess that early on, I had thought that it would be very challenging to put in place lockdowns in Western democracies, whether in Europe or in the United States. And I was actually quite surprised that those lockdowns were as successful as they were not only in Western Europe, but also here in the United States, because the degree of compliance with those lockdowns was actually very high. Fortunately, I think that we have learned over time, uh, especially with the experience more recently in the Sunbelt states, that you may be able to accomplish the same goals and objectives as bringing down the rate of transmission by not necessarily having to resort to full lockdowns. By using some of these non-pharmacologic interventions, you can pick out certain of them, implement certain of these measures like wearing masks or like closing bars and restaurants or some other settings where you think that there's a fair amount of transmission occurring and drive down the rate of transmission that way. The problem is that we got quite restless and we became overly enthusiastic about easing back on those lockdown measures when the number of cases that were still occurring in many of these locations was way too high to fall back onto that tracking, tracing, isolation, quarantine strategy. And because there were too many cases still occurring when we started lifting these lockdown orders, it was inevitable just mathematically that you would give the virus the upper hand and start to see more transmission occurring. And it took a few weeks to start seeing that, but it certainly happened in the United States. And so if you're going to resort to these measures, it's really important to keep the measures in place for a long enough period of time so that when you start lifting them, you have an effective fallback strategy in place to be able to keep transmission of the virus reined in to the degree possible. That's the way it should happen. And unfortunately, we flip the button too quickly. We need to have testing and we need to have contact tracing strategies in place if we're going to be able to keep the virus at bay. I think, you know, a lot of the mistakes that occurred in the United States early on with the failings of the CDC test and not having alternatives to that test available at a very critical phase in the trajectory of the pandemic, we simply haven't had a national strategy that we can apply across 
all 50 of the states that we can apply across various localities, it just hasn't been there. And each time along the way, when there are hints that suggest that the problem is getting better and that maybe we're going to turn the corner on testing, what you find is that another problem sort of emerges. You know, it looks to me like the overall testing scenario and situation in the country is improving, especially now that some of these easy to perform, low tech, what are referred to as antigen tests or lateral flow antigen tests are starting to come onto the market. I'm once again, somewhat optimistic that maybe we've turned the corner in the United States and it's not going to be as much of an issue going forward. What is going to influence the speed with which vaccines come to market? From my perspective, there's only one thing that should influence the speed with which vaccines come to market, and that's the science. It's only going to really work if you're absolutely certain that that vaccine works and that that vaccine is ironclad safe. You're not giving vaccines to infected people. You're giving them to well people. In those circumstances, you really, really, really do have to assure that they're safe. You can tolerate some low-level side effects of, you know, a sore arm or some achiness or uh, maybe a low-grade fever for some period of time. But a vaccine that gets approved that is subsequently shown to have adverse reactions that weren't appreciated and recognized during clinical trials can sink the entire enterprise. And so the one key here is to make sure that while we're doing the clinical trials to be able to evaluate any of these vaccine candidates, that we take the time to be able to, with certainty, identify that they work. And unfortunately, that takes some time. You see what just happened with the AstraZeneca vaccine based on one reported adverse reaction. They held the trial until they could fully evaluate the circumstances. But that's what you want to happen during clinical trials because you don't want to go through those trials and miss something like that and then not appreciate it until after the fact. So it's the science that has to drive the timeline. You can't uh, set some arbitrary timeline and then try to shortcut or cut corners. There's clearly anxiety among a lot of Americans about whether or not to take the vaccine. What's your view on that? One of the things that we know from lots and lots of years of experience is that one of the best predictors of whether or not somebody takes a vaccine uh, is whether or not their health care provider recommends to them that they receive it. It's really important to instill confidence in any of these vaccines that get authorized or licensed by the FDA to instill confidence in the healthcare community about the quality of any of these vaccines. We are in a unique political moment in that there is hyperpolarization in the country. And as a result of that, there maybe is a lack of trust that otherwise would not necessarily be the case. I'm curious for someone who served in such senior roles in government, how would you be trying to navigate like the politics of this moment? It's very difficult. But one of the things that I will say is that the only currency that public health has is trust. You can lose that trust in a heartbeat. Once you lose it, it's really very difficult to get it back. In fact, I would argue it's harder to get it back if you've lost it than it is to build it in the first place. It's disappointing to me, but not necessarily surprising how politicized virtually everything around COVID-19 has become. 
when you couple that with the really terrible job that's been done by leadership in this country in terms of communicating information around COVID-19, I think that those two factors in and of themselves are responsible for a lot of the difficulties that we've had in the United States controlling COVID-19. In the next couple of days, we will hit 200,000 fatalities associated with COVID-19 in the United States. And that's really quite staggering and something that I, I would never have imagined at the beginning of COVID-19 uh, would occur. A lot of people are expecting that one way or another, a vaccine will get developed next year. Is that the timeline that you foresee as well? The virus isn't going to go away. I think that that's magical thinking to think that somehow it's going to disappear. It's not like once a vaccine becomes available, we can stop washing our hands. And I think that it's not appropriate to think that after the pandemic wave slows down, that suddenly we're going to revert to the way things were before this pandemic occurred. I can't quite sort of envision at this point how things will be different, what things that we will retain, what things that we will do differently. But there are lots of things that we're doing differently today than we did a year ago at this time because of the pandemic. And I think it's eminently reasonable to think of the future in terms of the fact that some of them are going to become the new normal. Well said. Well, Dr. Ostroff, thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely fascinating conversation and really appreciate it. Great to be with you. That was Dr. Stephen Ostroff, former acting administrator of the Food and Drug Administration and former deputy director of the National Center for Infectious Diseases. Dr. Ostroff stressed that our response to COVID-19 is always evolving in response to what we learn. And with respect to a vaccine, he advised that the timeline must be driven by science. Finally, Dr. Ostroff told us that regrettably, communication around the virus has become politicized, but he expressed measured optimism about our testing capacity moving forward. We hope you'll join us next time for another in-depth interview with one of GLG's council members. Feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Or email us at decidingfactors at glgroup.com if you have feedback or ideas for future show topics. For Deciding Factors in GLG, I'm Eric Jaffe. Stay safe out there, and thanks for listening.